0: Okay, so hopefully you've found 1 Samuel chapter 27 by now. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Moak, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Gezurites, the Guzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels, and clothes. Then he returned to Akish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today, David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in the Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and he said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life.
1: Wonderful, thank you, Sue. Mortification. Is something that all Christians, knowingly or unknowingly, are practising. Mortification literally means the putting to death of something, which in our case, of course, what are we seeking to put to death as followers of Jesus? Sin. As followers of Jesus, part of the good work of God the Holy Spirit who dwells among us is that he inspires and he enables us to fight against our residual sinful nature. Now, of course, we improve our mortification when we learn the motivation for various sins. If you can remove or reduce the motivating force, then you're less likely to succumb to the sin. For example, God commands against drunkenness in the scriptures because drunkenness gives a very direct motivation for sinfulness. Paul writes in Ephesians, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, that is moral corruption the person who slanders, the violent person, the person who commits adultery, they're all more likely to be doing those things when they are drunk. Similarly, I'm sure many of us are familiar with 1 Timothy 6.10 that tells us that the love of money also provides a great motivation to sin. Now, amongst the many motivations for sin, whilst the misuse of alcohol and the love of money are certainly big issues for our culture and our church, It's an even bigger, more general issue, one that affects most, if not all of us, much of the time. Put simply, it's the fear of people over and above the fear of the Lord. To use the old language, the fear of man is a great motivator for sin. Kara is a Christian. She works in a small accounting firm. One Christmas, her boss gives her a $3,000 cash bonus and that same boss gives that same cash bonus to the nine other employees that Kara works with. The boss tells Cara and the other workers not to declare the cash bonus when they do their tax return forms so that they can all enjoy the full amount. Kara knows that if she does declare the amount on her tax return, then all her fellow workers will have to do the same. The one Christian in the firm will become the one that all the other workers despise. Should Kara do what's right in the eyes of man or what's right in the eyes of God? Now, even though you and I know the right answer, you can see how powerfully the temptation to please man over God can push us toward sin. But what exactly does it mean to fear man Over and above, fearing God. And what's the real, rather than the band-aid or the moralistic solution to that problem? Well, what do you know? That's something that we learn in the Word of God in this last extensive section of 1 Samuel, which is in store for us this morning. When I say last extensive section, I mean it. This is our last sermon in the series, and I'm going to try and cover from, uh, well, I'm not really going to cover, but chapter 26 through to 31, right, of, uh, of 1 Samuel. Now, what we're seeing generally the end of 1 Samuel is the parallel stories of the people's king, Saul, and his inevitable decline, along with God's chosen king, David, and his inevitable triumph. Throughout this last instalment of the saga, both kings succumb to the fear of man above the fear of the Lord, especially in chapters 27 and 28, which I've chosen to, I guess, narrow the focus into for today. But in order to understand and appreciate what's going on here, it will help to have a brief sketch of the big picture of chapters 26 through to 31. At the beginning of chapter 26, Saul learns of David's whereabouts. In a previous encounter, Saul had apologised for hunting David, but his repentance was short-lived. For in 26 and verse 2, as soon as Saul knows where David is, he comes after him, note, with select Israelite troops. In other words, he goes to hunt him down with an army. Again, like last time, David, with God's sovereign help, outwits Saul and happens to end up standing over him while he's in a deep sleep, a God-given deep sleep. One of David's men, one of his soldiers, Abishai, offers to kill Saul, then and there using Saul's own spear. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Don't kill Saul. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, David said, the Lord himself will strike him or his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and the water jug that are near his head and let's go. Of course, David then uses the spear and the jug as physical evidence to show Saul that he could have taken his life but chose not to. And again, Saul admits to being sinful and he repents. Now, David clearly understood that the Lord could be trusted to protect him and deliver him from out of all his troubles. He said as much, you know, God will take care of Saul, not me. And indeed, that's what plays out for the remainder of the book of 1 Samuel. The Philistines mount a huge offensive against Israel, chapters 28 through 30, and Saul ends up perishing in the battle, which is the very end. We we see that in chapter 31. And by 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is the king of a united Israel. That's the big picture of the final section. And against that backdrop, What we read and what we just had read out for us in chapter 27 ought to come as a huge shock. David has just seen and affirmed that Yahweh, the Lord, will protect him. David even said the reason he hated being hunted by Saul and Saul's men was that it would drive him out of God's promised land. Quote, David says, they've driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance. And they have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. Clearly, David did not want to go away from God's promised land of Israel. And clearly, David knew that the Lord would protect him from the hand of Saul. And he would somehow also see to it that Saul met his demise And so look again now at how chapter 27 begins. It should be a shock. Chapter uh, 27, verse 1. But David thought to himself, one of these days, I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went, went over. As an expression, went over to Ahish, son of Maok, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Ahish. Friends, if the Bible was made up, you would not think to include something like this. The great king David, who has a firm trust in the sovereign goodness and protection of the Lord, all of a sudden makes a drastic choice based entirely on the fear of man. You can know the Lord, like the great King David, and still doubt his sovereign goodness based on the threat posed by another human, even one whose downfall is imminent. I suspect those who also have been followers of Jesus for a while will feel this with a, a slight twinge of pain, that yes, I know that I've known God and yet been the kind of guy that succumbs to, to pleasing people in a way that Caused me to compromise my faith. During his time with the Philistines, David deceives the ruler Achish, making him think that David has rejected Israel and become a Philistine sympathiser. That's a hard feat to pull off. David goes on military campaigns against some of the surrounding nations that pose a threat to Israel, such as the Gershurites, the Gezites, and the Amalekites. But we are told in verse 9, whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Ahish. When Ahish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites." He did not leave a man or a woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. But David could have told Achish who he'd really conquered. And it would have been absolutely fine. For they also happened to be enemies of the Philistines. So why the deception? Well, it may be the case that David thought of himself as fulfilling God's historic command to completely rid the promised land of all the sinful people that that, that inhabit it and that the groups he chose were perhaps a greater threat to, to Israel than the Philistines at that time. But the writer leaves it dubious as to whether David's complete annihilation of men and women was more about serving God than about protecting his own interests by enabling him to shore up a good image in the eyes of the Philistines. Again, it looks like David suffers the fear of man over and above the fear of of the Lord. Now, Ahish is completely fooled by David's deception, so much that he says of David, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Literally, in the Hebrew, the phrase is, I will make you the protector of my head for life. Now, think about this, right? If you're a powerful Philistine warrior who happens to live in Gath, then surely David is the last person on earth you should trust to look after your head. The trust that Ahish has for David leads to the point where he instructs him to actually accompany the Philistines on their attack against Israel. And that put David in a bit of a pickle because we know he'd not want to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't want to fight against Saul. And we speculate that David perhaps expressed his enthusiasm for joining the battle in order to both keep up his deceptions and perhaps to seek an opportunity to somehow turn against the Philistines during the fight. But God, in his sovereign goodness, again, spares David from that difficulty, which only serves to highlight David's unfortunate backsliding during this period. Again, the point is clear. It's possible to have a firm trust in the sovereign goodness and protection of the Lord, and yet make decisions based on the fear of man. Well, that's David. What about Saul? Well, we turn now, I'm going to go an extra chapter, turn now to chapter 28, where we see the culmination of Saul's long-term fear of man over and above his fear of the Lord. Chapter 28 and verse 4, the Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem while Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. Now, of course, it's normal to be terrified of a large army coming on the attack, but Saul has had a lot of Philistine battles, and this is the first time that his fear is mentioned with such extremity. Terror filled his heart. Perhaps Saul suspects that with David now possibly aligned with the Philistines and with Samuel's prophecy that the kingdom would eventually be taken from him, that his long string of failures to obey God might finally be catching up with him. If you remember back, Saul's two really big failures both came about on account of fearing man over fearing the Lord. In the first instance, he was worried his soldiers were deserting him and the enemy would have the upper hand unless a sacrifice was made in time. Samuel was a long time in coming. Saul caved and made the sacrifice himself. In the second instance, he failed to carry out the Lord's fierce wrath against the Amalekites, again, on account of having more fear of man than God. 1 Samuel 15, 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, i violated the Lord's command and your instructions. Why? I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Well, here in chapter 28, Saul's fear is no doubt compounded when he calls to God and gets no answer, which is exactly what Samuel had prophesied would happen if Israel went ahead and chose a king for themselves. On that day, you'll cry out to me, and I will not answer, he had said. And Saul's last ditch effort is yet another sin inspired by the fear of men rather than the fear of God. He consults a medium, in the old language, a witch, in direct violation of God's law. Previously, Saul had expelled all the mediums and diviners from the land, but here he's so hopelessly reduced and compromised that he now seeks one out for help. Here's how it goes. I'll read the account out and make some comments as we go through. Verse 7 of chapter 28, Saul then said to his his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium, so I may go and inquire of her. There's one in Endor, they said. Now, why it has to be a woman, I'm not sure. Though from what I can gather, the sin of necromancy and divination seems to have a slightly higher female representation in the Bible. If anyone knows why, come and tell me. The fact that Saul's attendants can so quickly answer, oh, there's one in Endor, sort of hints that corruption and compromise have spread all throughout his kingdom. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off all the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Now, that's got to hurt. The disguised Saul gets a reminder from this witch of his former glory, wherein he was obeying God by cutting off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Now he needs to promise her that he's not out to harm this medium, and he even does so by invoking the name of Yahweh. Verse 10, Saul swore to her by the Lord. As surely as Yahweh lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, who shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out of the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. Now, whatever this woman's necromancy experiences were in the past, it's very obvious that she's freaked out by what happens here. She clearly has some sort of unique and unexpected revelation. It's almost certainly the case that God is the one who has made this divination successful, for he's the God who accomplishes his perfect plans, even as he hands us over to our sinful practices in judgment. Verse 13, the king said to her, don't be afraid, what do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Notice the emphasis there, bowed down, prostrated, face to the ground. This is the first time we hear... Saul prostrating himself with his face to the ground. The man who was head and shoulders above the rest is now on the ground in the house of a medium wearing his peasant clothing. What does Samuel have to say? The basic answer is nothing new. Verse 16, Samuel said, Why do you consult me? Now that the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbours, to David, because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. The Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. The king, who is like the kings of all the other nations, was supposedly going to save Israel from her enemies, the Philistines. Now both Israel and her chosen king will be defeated by the Philistines, and for Saul it's a dreadfully tragic and horrific way to go. To use a phrase much later from the Apostle Paul in in, uh, Ephesians, it's basically being without hope and without God in the world. Of course, Saul's response is devastating. Verse 20, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all that day and all that night. There's now nothing more he can do. He knows he's a condemned man about to undergo execution. And so the chapter ends with the woman offering to serve Saul and his men their last meal. Initially, verse 23, Saul refused and said, I'll not eat. But his men joined the woman in urging him and he listened to them. He got up from the ground and sat on the couch The woman had a fattened calf at the house, which she butchered at once, took some flour, kneaded it, and baked bread without yeast. Then she set it before Saul and his men, and they ate. That same night, they got up and left. You feel the woe and the tragedy as it ends, don't you? And of course, we can't help but think of another condemned king of Israel coming to the realisation that he would be in a sense, without God in the world. Despite his pleading, he would be forsaken. Of course, the difference with Jesus is that he only ever served and feared and pleased God. He never feared man over above his heavenly Father, and he certainly never consulted a witch, and even during his last meal, he would choose to serve rather than be served Yet Jesus still endured something similar to what Saul is enduring here, only a million times worse. And he did it on account not of disobedience, but on account of his obedience. For God planned that King Jesus would atone for all the times you and I have and will fear man above fearing God. Now, as we know, God gives David a way out from fighting alongside the Philistines and when the battle takes place, Saul and his sons are struck down and not long afterwards, David returns to Israel, unites the tribes and becomes their best king prior to Jesus. Now, because these two stories of David and Saul are being told side by side, we're right to compare and contrast the people's king, Saul, with God's king, David. And strikingly, we find that there's a great similarity. Both are capable of the fear of man over and above the fear of God. Both are capable of spectacular failure, both as bad as one another. And even if you had doubts that David could be bad, or I would argue worse than Saul you'd be corrected by the time you get to the adultery, the murder, and the deception with Bathsheba and Uriah in 2 Samuel. The biggest difference between the two kings is that one was chosen according to the eyes of the people at Saul, whereas the other, David, was chosen according to the heart of God. God would therefore never depart from, From David, as he has here departed from Saul. No matter how bad David would cave in to the fear of man, which he certainly would, no matter how heinous David's sins would be, and they would be pretty spectacular, God would never take his love away from David as he did with Saul. Neither is more or less deserving but God chose David. And so it is with all those who are part of the body of Christ. The now risen and ascended Jesus will never obviously be without God's love. Hence all those who are in Christ, no matter how much we might cave in to sinful temptation, will never be left or forsaken by God. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, God says to all his children. We who are in Christ will never have to endure the kind of terror of the heart that Saul endured and that Jesus endured even more at Gethsemane and on the cross. Fear of man is a great motivator of sin, but the assured victory of God's anointed, that is Jesus removes our fear, it actually removes our greatest fear. And that perspective is actually the key to overcoming the problem. As David rightly demonstrated before his poor choices, looking to the future helps us to fear God more than to fear man. You see, despite his sinful decisions, David still knew that God would somehow remove Saul from the throne. And by the end of chapter 31, that's exactly what has happened. And so it is with us. Jesus has already been installed on his throne and currently his enemies are being made his footstool. On the last day, all those who know him will be vindicated, including Kara, whose workmates despise her for her righteous behaviour. Because she knew Jesus, she could make the choice to enjoy eternal vindication rather than temporary ease. She could choose to fear God over fearing humans. She could uphold the words that I really like from Isaiah 2:22, where God says, "Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? By way of implication, both in God's word here and of course in the gospel, The antidote to the fear of man is to look forward. The next time you're tempted to keep your mouth shut because your biblical convictions make your opinion unpopular. The next time your family pressure you to skip church for the sake of a family event. The next time someone says that moving to a gospel-poor country in order to use your gifts to build up the local church is both morally deplorable and utterly stupid. Whatever the challenge, whatever the pressure that come from mere humans in whose nostrils is but a breath, ask yourself the question, will God make good on his promise to unite all things under the lordship of Jesus? Will God's sovereign plan come to pass no matter what? Will every ruler... And every person of every nation one day bow, be it willingly or unwillingly, and acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. Of course, the answer is yes. It's that kind of thing that reduces the motivation to succumb to the fear of man and instead live under the fear of the holy and loving God. Now, friends, I don't know that I've ever done this before in a sermon but I'm actually going to finish with a Bible reading. How novel. I figure being an ordained minister probably makes it fitting for me to read out a passage of scripture at church from time to time, so it just so happens, I I couldn't help myself, I got one that I think perfectly summarises and applies this particular teaching. Allow me to read for you Psalm 73. Surely... God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. i had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace they clothe themselves with violence for their callous hearts from their callous hearts comes iniquity their evil imaginations have no limits they scoff and speak with malice with arrogance they threaten oppression their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance they say how would god know Does the most high know anything this is what the wicked are like always free of care they go on amassing wealth surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence all day long I've been afflicted every morning brings new punishments if I had spoken out like that I would have betrayed your children when I tried to understand all this it troubled me deeply Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail... But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. Amen. Amen.